The Bible's in the back if you don't have one. We're in the gospel according to Ezra and Nehemiah. We are coming close to its conclusion. Next week we look at Nehemiah chapter 13 and finish these two great books of gospel. After we finish we'll be in two weeks in Matthew 18. And then I think the second week of June we launch into our summer series called Proverbs, God's Wisdom for Gospel Living. As I said last week, it's not so that you could make yourself better, but to make Christ known. As Timothy was told by Paul, the the scriptures were given to to know Jesus and it's profitable for for correction and and, uh, all scriptures profitable for correction and and, and for sanctification. So we want to see Jesus through this a wonderful book of Proverbs and grow in the likeness of Christ so that others will see Jesus and come and have their sins forgiven. It's about the gospel, about living in the gospel. So that's coming up starting in June. Meanwhile, we're finishing up, as I said, Nehemiah. So turn your Bibles to Nehemiah 11. Um, We said that Nehemiah, like Ezra, began with a building project, a lot of mortar, a lot of brick, but ends with renewal of God's people. That's what we've been looking at. We saw three phases so far. Phase one of this great revival going on in the days of Nehemiah began in chapter 8 with the reading and teaching of God's word, which led to this wonderful great celebration, chapter 8, phase 1. Chapter 9, phase 2, they brought the scriptures back out again. They read the word of God again. There was brokenness over their sins. They recognized only their sins, but the sins of their ancestries. And this confession of sin, this prayer lasted for hours as they celebrated and recognized and recited God's goodness, God's faithfulness, and even their rebellion. They were honest about their sin against him, phase two. Phase three is chapter 10, last week, where their people repented of their sins. Repentance is a change of mind. It involves the intellect. It involves the the emotion and the will. It really is a change of direction, a change of action. So we saw these, these, these people of God coming together under the word of God. There was first celebration, then there was brokenness, and then there was repentance. Confession is good, but repentance must follow. A change of action, a change of direction. Last week, we saw them take four oaths or four covenants and firm agreements. We said it wasn't so much they made a new agreement or a new covenant, but they, they, they were renewing their covenant that, they, that God already made with Moses, the Mosaic covenant, including blessings and curses, and that's how we ended last week. And the agreement was they, had a, a, they came together as a body, as one, and they agreed to submit to the word of God, to follow everything in it. They agreed to separate themselves from the world. They agreed to keep the Sabbath, and they agreed to support the work of the ministry. Submission, separation, Sabbath, and support of the work of the ministry. And before we get into our text this morning in Ezra, uh, excuse me, Nehemiah 11 and 12, you will notice if you're there, there's a lot of names again. (laughs) I have to read some of them today, but I'm going to not read all of it for you. You can go back and, and read it for yourself if you'd like. Or you just want to laugh as I try to get through all these Jewish names, I'm not really sure. But uh, they're there for you. Uh, there's actually four lists of names in Nehemiah 11 and 12. The first one in chapter 11, verse 4 down to verse 24, are names of people and families, a list of families of those who volunteered to go back into Jerusalem. We're going to be looking at that this morning. That's the first list. The second list of names in chapter 11, verse 25 through 36, is a list of people that moved out, were outside of Jerusalem, around 90%, we'll look at that again today as well, uh, about 90%, maybe a little less, that lived not in Jerusalem, but lived in the outskirts of Jerusalem. 
And they have a list of names of all those that lived outside Jerusalem. And then in chapter 12, there's two lists of priests and Levites. Remember, every priest is a Levite coming from the tribe of Levi, but not every Levite is a priest. I know that's really important for you this morning, but it really does, it really is important because priests only come from the lineage of Aaron, okay? Of course, he comes from the tribe of Levi. So priests were given the responsibility to, 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 to enter into the Holy of Holies once a year. The priest, that was the high priest. The priests were given responsibility and the, the privilege of serving God in the sacrifices. That was the lineage of Aaron. But the Levites from the tribe of Levi, if you were a Levite and you weren't from, the, from Aaron's lineage, then you were given the responsibility and the privilege to assist the priests. And you have a list of them in chapter 12. And you see importance that they have priests, they have Levites, they have people working and serving in the temple. Dr. Ralph Davis, he's a professor at Reformed Theological Seminary, said this, what is the significance of this list in chapter 12, 1 through 26? He says, well, basically you have two historical generations of priests and Levites, 12, 1 through 11, and 12, 12 through 21, and 24 through 26. So why do we have them? He asks the question. And then he writes, folks who are still serving in the worship of sacrifice and praise and vigilance as did an earlier generation. See what he's saying? He's saying that Nehemiah wrote the list of priests throughout the generations, Levites throughout the generations to show that the families that were acknowledged here reached back and reached forward. And that the families throughout generations are still serving and still worshiping God at the temple. As I thought about that, I thought, wouldn't that, isn't that what we want? Not only for our families, for our church, 10, 20, 30, 60, 80, 90 years, as long as the Lord tarries, that this generation of this church, this community of people is still serving, still worshiping, still praising God? That's what you have here. So I, what I did was I looked at each name. I figured out exactly where they came from, what the name means. And we're going to go through every single name here in both lists. No, we're not going to do that. But let me just give you a, just a couple of things. We see a lot of lists. Let me just give you a, a couple of things in passing. Why would we do that? Why would God have these names? Let me tell you a couple of things. Number one, God's a God of order. God's a God of order. He's an order. It's, it's an orderly list. It, it details families, names of people who did what they did. God's a God of order. Number two, it's a way for Nehemiah to show that it wasn't just about him. It was a way to share this limelight. Yes, God raises up leaders, but it's not a one-man show. So even though others may not recognize or, or understand or really appreciate your ministry, God knows. The Father knows the names of all his children, each and every one of them, and what they do. People may not see it, but the God in heaven does. Number three, I, I think it's encouragement. I, I think that the families who are part of this these generations and the generations to follow would be encouraged. I think it's Nehemiah saying, listen, it wasn't just about me. I want to encourage you and tell you about a lot of people got involved in serving. And here are the names. And lastly, one of the main reasons we see names in the Old Testament, we've seen this already in Ezra and Nehemiah, is they were carefully recorded name by name, generation by generation, to make sure that they were truly part of the covenant people of God, right? So they had careful records proving that, yes, this generation, this family came from Israel and here is the generations recorded for us and they knew who was what, where they came from. 
And I realize in this postmodern culture who likes to push against authority, let me, let me push back a little bit and say one reason for membership in a local church, if done right, is for the purpose of keeping record of who belongs to the covenant people of God. And people say, well, you know, church, co- you know, church membership's really not in Scripture. Well, you know what? It doesn't say Paul took, you know, a vote on church government, uh, a church covenant, but we do see in Scripture over and over lists and names of people that were part of a community. So I want to encourage you, if you're not part of this church as a covenant member of the church, shoot me an email. We have membership classes. Love to sit down and talk with you about being part of this family in covenant with one another. In chapters 11 and 12, it's really about the population, or better said, the repopulation of God's people. Now, the city is built, the walls have been established, and now they're going to populate or repopulate it. Nehemiah's not going to do it all by himself. You get that on the way home. But we do see in chapter three, chapter 11 and 12, three things. First is living. We're going to see them living in the city, living within the walls and living like the gospel. I think it points to the gospel. Second thing is serving. They're not just living in the gospel, they're serving in the gospel. They, they understand whom it is in which they serve and they're looking to serve each other and one another in the city. And third and finally is worshiping. We're going to end on worship. It really begins in worship, but it ends in worship. I'm going to look at a couple of traits of what worship is. So if you're taking notes, that's, that's where we're going. Living, serving, and worshiping. Very easy. Look at Nehemiah 11. Nehemiah 11, in the beginning, we come across a situation. Remember, the walls have been built. They're going to be dedicated. We're going to see that today, too. The walls have been established, but there is still lots of room in the city. So Nehemiah comes across what needs to be done as a national referendum. And you see in chapter 11, verse 1, it, you know, they, didn't, they didn't go to the voting booths. They kind of just flipped a coin to see who is it that was going to go back and live in the city. The biblical phrase is casting lots. Chapter 11, verse 1. Now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem. And the rest of the people cast lots to bring out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine of ten remained in other towns. Last week, if you remember, the people had made a commitment, an oath, a covenant that they were going to tithe their produce, they were going to tithe their income. And now Nehemiah and others decide it is time to tithe, 10%, the people. Like 10% of you need to move out of the suburbs and 10% need to move back into the city. Now, in Old Testament times, casting lots was something like throwing dice, right? They, they wanted to find the will of God, and I've done as much research as I can. No one knows exactly what casting lots mean. It could be a flat stone. It could be something like dice. It could be sticks with different lengths. They don't really know exactly. But one thing we do know from Scripture is the casting of lots wasn't something of luck and chance. That's not the way they looked at it. They were actually so committed, the Jews, the Hebrews, were so committed to the sovereignty of God. They were so committed to knowing that God was sovereign over every single detail of their life. So committed to the sovereignty of God that they knew God would direct the outcome of even the lots according to his divine providence. Proverbs 16, we're going to be looking at Proverbs. It says, the lot is cast into the lap, but... It's every decision is from the Lord. It wasn't luck. It wasn't chance. They understood God was sovereign. They were trying to figure out what the will of the Lord was. We see that in Acts chapter 1, after the death of Judas. 
They cast lots, and a lot fell on Matthias, who was added to the 11 apostles. So there's this casting of lots, this, this rolling of dice. Ricky and I are going to head out to the casinos this week and put that biblical practice into, you know, to see if it really works. No, he said, no. I mean, if you think about it, what's cool about this way of doing it is it really took, you know, there was no argument. You know, you like this guy better than that guy, this family better than this. It was like, you know what? You know, it kind of removed any complaining or impartiality. And I think it's important, let me just mention this before we move on, that the casting of lots is no longer seen in Scripture in the New Testament after Acts 1.26. Once Pentecost came, once the Holy Spirit was given to indwell believers, once we have the complete canon of Scripture, if you don't know what canon means, comes to class, we're going to talk about that, it's my little pitch. Once we had the complete canon of Scripture, you don't see the casting of lots. We have the Lord's will, we have his word in completion, we have the Spirit of God dwelling within us. But here we see the gates and the, and the walls built. Jerusalem is now being restored. And it was important that the builders who were doing this building would actually inhabit the capital city. That's what we see. The population needs to grow. Look at verse 2. You have some citizens that volunteered willingly and others were drafted by lot. Look at verse 2. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. Now, if you're thinking, why... Is it so important, number one, or why is it a problem? Why wouldn't people move into the city? I don't know how many of you come from the city. But in that day, city was dangerous just like it is today. Living in the city was dangerous. If an army came into the region, the first place they would go to the walled city. They would capture it. They would capture the people. They would capture the money. They would capture the people of power and influence and resources that were in the city. Also, if you lived in the city, if you chose to live in the city and leave the suburbs, you would leave your land. You'd have to give up your land or maybe turn your land over to somebody else. And you didn't know whether it was going to be, you know, cultivated correctly. In that day, the, the, the land, the, the, you know, the cultivation of the land was extremely important. And the plowing, the planting, and the harvesting of their crops. So if you move into the city, who's going to take care of your land? It was a big deal. For many of them, the thought of actually leaving their comfort zone, leaving the place that they were used to, leaving that place of security was extremely hard. And now in verse 2, or in verse 1 and 2, you see people that were casted that, that, that by lots. They were you know, chosen to live in Jerusalem. And then in verse 2, it says, willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. I just want to tell you that some people think it's two different people, and some people think it's one. So in other words... I choose to throw the lot. I'm willingly going to volunteer, be part of the lot casting. Or, which I think, you can think whatever you want. I think it's two separate groups. I think they did lots. They casted the lots, got 10%. Then some people are like, you know what, I'll go too. I, I think it was two groups of people. So I think it's a little more than 10% now are moving back into the city. Two separate groups. But there's a lot of people. But either way, 10%, 12%, whatever it is, think about it with me. They left their homes. Their land, their relatives, their neighbors, their work, their friends, familiar routines, no cell phones, right? No computers, not so easy to get connected. And they chose to live a radically different environment. God called them to a sacrifice. When God called Abraham, what did he tell him? Go, leave the familiar and go to where I call you to go. Here these people are told to leave the familiar and move into the city. The city has a significant place 
in the plan of God. Jerusalem was about the kingdom of God. We've talked about this. Jerusalem was where God was at work in the world. As unimpressive maybe as it was, or dangerous as it seemed, in spite of all that, in this day and age, in Nehemiah 11, in that redemptive history, God was pursuing his redemptive program through his people in Jerusalem, in the Holy Spirit, in the, excuse me, the Holy City. Now, this ain't like the ancient gods of, of the, in those days. If you know anything about them, they had their territorial gods, where God, they had certain gods in certain territories. So when you moved into a certain land or a certain place, you had to worship their god. The Hebrews knew that God, their god, Yahweh, Jehovah, was the god who created the heavens and the earth. There was no place that they can go that were not outside the presence of God. But God, in his sovereignty, in his providence, in his decision, chose to dwell with his people in the city of Jerusalem, where he would meet with them, where they would worship him, where the promise took place. The temple of Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem, stood at the heart of the city's life, their moral life, their religious life, their spiritual life. It was huge. King David, Psalm 48. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth. You hear that? Mount Zion, in the far north, the city of the great king, within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. This is huge. This is giant. So it's not just about living in a remodeled city. It's about living in the holy city, the hagios, the separated city, the city in which God chose to dwell, separate from the rest of the world and all that is common to show his face, to have a special relationship with his people. It was an enormous privilege, but it also was a great challenge and, and a great responsibility. Now, let, let me apologize up front to tell you what I'm about to say. I sound like a broken record. I, I know that, but I'm going to say it anyway. Separation does not mean isolation, and it does not mean seclusion. Yes, we are to live differently. God's people are called to live differently, but we're still called to be good neighbors. Good neighbors. Um, leading people, pointing people to Yahweh, to God, to Christ. Being loving people. Right? Even the temple had the court of the Gentiles. To be set apart, yes, but to be sent in the world as missionaries for Christ. So yes, we reject, we redeem, we, we, we receive certain cultural practices, but never, never, never do we never reject people. We love them. Yes, we call them to repentance, but we love them and we point them to Jesus Christ. I know I keep saying that, but whenever I see separation in Scripture, my, my, my concern is that we say, let's disengage culture. I, I just want to make sure that everyone says, yes, we are to love our wives differently. We are to raise our children differently. We are to, to use our, uh, the, 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 the things that God has given us as good stewards for his glory, yes. But we are to love people. We are absolutely to love people. So these people are committed to their God. They volunteer in this city. They put God's agenda the kingdom of God, above their individual desires. They devote themselves to worship him in the temple and in the city rather than their own agenda. They're pursuing the kingdom of God, the worship of God, rather than their own safety and prosperity. So all of us must ask this question as we move on. Are you and I willing, are you and I willing to leave the comfort, 
Leave the comfort zone for the sake of the gospel, for the kingdom of Christ. Are we willing to love the unlovable? To minister to what the culture calls the marginalized? Could God be calling you to a foreign place? Could God be preparing you and I in this church to plant churches both locally and globally? To step outside of the comfort zone so that the glory and the gospel of Jesus Christ can go forward. I don't know what God is asking you as an individual, but I know he wants you to love people. I know he wants you to be willing and able and available to be used of him. To point people to Jesus. To point everyone. Those that others won't even look at. And for many of us, if we're, just, if we're honest, when you talk about global mission or, or local missions or, or, or um, local planting or global planting, you know, those are, those are big kind of concepts. I'm like, you know, easy sometimes to wrap our brain around those concepts. But then we say, you know, God wants you to love your neighbor, your coworker. God wants you to declare and speak the truth of the gospel and demonstrate in love and deeds to those to whom you see at work. Your neighbor, your friends, your family, your, your people that you go to school with. Remember, the tighter we hold on to things, the greater the pain when God rips them from our hands. I think Nehemiah was so caught up in the grace and mercy of God. Chapter 9, verse 31. Your great mercy, Lord, you did not end us or abandon us for you are gracious and merciful God you are so good you are so gracious you are so merciful send me but family is that not the gospel of Jesus Christ did not Jesus king of kings lord of lords leave the familiar the comforts of heaven dwelling in glory unbroken intimacy with the father yet came to earth where he was sacrificed, stepping out of comfort, out of eternal glory, and humbly died a brutal death by crucifixion, dying in our place, experiencing the cup of the Father's wrath, the curse, Galatians 3, his Father turning his face from him while on the cross so that you can have his face, so that you can have his love, so you can experience intimacy with God. Is not that the gospel? The old 1800 hymn goes like this. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned, he, Jesus, stood, cursed, stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood, hallelujah. You know the song, what a savior. Guilty, vile, and helpless we. Spotless lamb of God was he. Full atonement can it be. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Where is God calling you? God's call on our life to sacrifice, to live outside the comfort zone for his glory and his gospel is a response to the ultimate sacrifice, the sacrifice of leaving of comfort that Jesus did to reconcile us to the Father, living like the gospel. Number two, serving in the gospel. Now, the people were committed to, to live outside their comfort zone. They're living in the holy city. They need to be ready or to serve one another or to mobilize for the purpose of ministry. Look at verse three. These are the chiefs of the providence who live in Jerusalem, but in the towns of Judah, everyone lived on his property. So you have the city and 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 Judah of their town. Israel, 
the priests, the Levites, the temple servants, and the descendants of Jerusalem, excuse me, Solomon's servants, and in Jerusalem lived certain sons of Judah, and the names go on. Various people serving inside the city, and it says a couple times that they were valiant. I don't know if you noticed that. Look at verse uh, 6. 468 valiant men. That, that means men of substance, outstanding men. What this teaches me, what this teaches us, is that God has raised up people with gifts, talents, abilities to serve. It's not my job to serve in every area. We've been asking for people to, to be involved in serving in different ministry teams. We need, God wants you and I to serve one another. To serve one another. And, and there's see a variety of people here. Everyone has different gifts and talents. Talents, And I think I see, we see at least three gifts here that I want to talk about. Number one, verse three says, chief of the province who lived in Jerusalem. Verse uh, one talks about the leadership. So I want to talk about leadership gifts for a minute. God has raised up leaders, men of substance, women of substance, people who will stand up, take responsibility, take charge, take leadership. Now, there's a debate whether verse 1 and verse 3 are the same people of leadership, but either way, it's a different Hebrew word. But I think as we read Nehemiah, and we read it over and over again, Nehemiah is constantly pointing to his leadership team, that God raises up leaders. God's looking for people to step up and take responsibility. And if you look at Nehemiah's life, you will see how important it is and important he believed it to be, is that not only does he take leadership, but he's developing other leaders, delegating responsibilities to other leaders. Nehemiah teaches that throughout his life, that there's a balance between efficient organization and leadership and also a a, a total dependency upon God at the same time. There's, yes, leadership, I need to take charge, I need to push forward, I need to bring people with me, and yet I need to be dependent, I'm prayerful, dependent upon God's strength to get me through. We see that there uh, many times throughout Nehemiah. I'm thankful for the leadership. We had a pastoral meeting this week, uh, last week, today's the first day of the week, last week, where the pastors got together as five of us praying and serving and loving and caring. I, I will tell you, the pastoral team here at this church all love each other, serve one another, care for one another in a very deep way. And I am so thankful for that. I'm thankful for the community group leaders who serve in their community group, who prepare their lesson, who give their time and their talents for the kingdom of God and for the expansion of his kingdom. I'm thankful for the VBS program leaders who are taking charge. The children's church ministry leaders are doing a great job. These people are examples to follow as they take charge and take leadership. We see that in Nehemiah's day. The next gift I think we see here is administrative gifts. An overseer of operations is what uh, the the dictionary says about administrative gifts. And if you look at this list in chapter 11, you'll see people serving as administrators, overseers. Verse 9, Joel the son of Zikri was their overseer. And Judah the son of Massanah was second over the city. So you have the leaders and then you have those administrators kind of making sure that the city functioned well, that the infrastructure and and the things were going well as the population began to grow inside the city. There was leaders, then there was administrators making sure things were going well within the city. 
I'm thankful for people like uh, uh, Courtney Knackle on the back there doing the sound. And as people start coming in, she's, she's administrating. She's making sure things are running well. She's overseeing the operations of the soundboard. Simple as that may be, it's extremely important. Noah's back there doing the PowerPoints for us. So when we sing, we're all just not looking around going, what's the next word? Overseer of operations, doing it very well. I'm thankful for the hospitality teams, smiling faces as you enter the building. Right? There's administrative, there's people that oversee operations. God raised you up to do that. So you have, you have administrative, uh, you have leadership. Number three, I think you have serving gifts. Look at verse 16. Two guys, Shepathiah and Josabad, of the chiefs of the Levites who were over the outside work of the house of God. So they're like, listen, you take care of the temple. You know, it's, it's bad weather may come and, and they're going to need repairs and things need to get fixed. And you guys are, are, have giftedness in that area, so you work on the building. Whether it's inside work, like Bev, who does all the, the help, does the decorating here, Bev Hannay. Then you got, you know, Tony Zallow, Timmy Blake doing the lawn, like to come uh, drive in this morning. I'm like, ah, nice. The law's been mowed. That's good. Rebecca McVean doing the flowers, getting ready to put some flowers out front. Right? Even verse 19 says we've got gatekeepers. Bob and I recognize with gatekeepers, don't we, Bob? Everybody working out. This family, church, King's Chapel, are filled with people with serving gifts on a regular basis. They serve regularly. They serve on ministry teams. If you're not serving, you get plugged in. Talk to us. Uh, um, the pastor and elders here in this church want to plug you in. We're also very grateful for everyone who serves faithfully as part of the ministry here at King's Chapel. You are appreciated. And I will tell you, according to the scripture, that every single one of us has some gifts and talents that God has given you, and if you do not step up and use your gift, everyone suffers. Read 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. We're mobilized for ministry. If you go to our website, we've been saying there's a ministry, you can get connected, there's a ministry page, you can click on that. What are your gifts? What are your talents? Even if you're not sure, there's a place on there that you can have this assessment we put on there. So it gives you kind of an, an index. It doesn't tell you exactly what your spiritual gift is, but it'll help you maybe think through in the words of Robert De Niro, you got a gift, my friend. If you've never seen that movie, you've got a gift. Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, uh, 1 Peter 4 has a list of spiritual gifts. Where are you? Now, if you're saying, you know what, I don't know. If you're a Christian, you have a spiritual gift. And let, me, let me define spiritual gifts for you, and then we'll move on. Spiritual gifts, according to Scripture, follow me now. Everyone has gifts. Every single Christian has been given a spiritual gift by God. Read your Bible. It's in there. 12, 13, and 14 in 1 Corinthians is a great place to go. A spiritual gift is an ability, something you do, sovereignly given by God. You don't get to choose it. He chooses it for you. And I believe that people have gifts according to what needed in the ministry of the church at the time. So spiritual gifts are ability given by God to believers for God's glory. Not for this. For God's glory. That empowers us, strengthens us, for the building up of the body. It's not about me. It's not about look at me. Look how good I am. For the building up of the body, the work of ministry, serving one another, serving our community, and the advancement of the kingdom. See, there's no I in there. God's glory, building up, 
serving, ministering, and advancing the kingdom. That's what spiritual gifts are for. We are saved and we are sent in the world as missionaries, but we're also saved and empowered by God to serve each other. We're part of a family. We are members of each other and we are missionaries in our community. No one can do everything, but everyone can do something. I want to encourage you, kingschapel.net. Go, get connected. Where's your gifts? Are you using your gifts? Are you using talents? Are you using them? I want to encourage you to do so so that all of us can be blessed by it. Lastly, worshiping the God of the gospel. This whole passage starts and ends with worship. And what you will find throughout these two chapters is a lot of singers, a lot of musicians, all right? The verse, uh, chapter 11, verse 17. And Mataniah, the son of Micah, son of Zabdi, son of Asab, who was the leader of the praise, who gave thanks. Now, we're gonna talk about worship. Let me just, let me just tell you, I know that worship is all of life. Everything we do is worship. But here we're talking about music. That's what we're going to be getting. They're going to get into this dedication, this worship service. So when I say worship, I'm talking about music, but that's not all there is. Preaching the word, hearing the word, serving your wife, whatever it is, is worship unto the Lord. That's what we'll do all our life, right? Romans 12, right? We make a sacrifice. Uh, uh, we're, we're, we're a living sacrifice, right? We worship our God. But here we're talking about music. And you see in verse, uh, chapter 11, verse 17, that there were those who gave thanks. They were leader of praise bands. They praised God. They were thankful. They had this, remember chapter 9, they, 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 they saw God, how great and generous and good and merciful and kind God was and is. And the themes of God's mercy and God's grace and God's kindness goes throughout chapter 9, chapter 10, chapter 11, chapter 12. Look down at verse 22 of chapter 11. The overseer of the Levites in Jerusalem was Uzai, the son of Benai, son of Bashabiah, son of Mataniah, son of Micah, son of Asaph, son of, uh, I kept saying son, the singers over the work of the house of God. Singers, musicians, chapter 12, turn the page, verse 8. The Levites, Jeshua, Benaiah, Kadamire, Shara, and the rest of the guys who were his brothers were in charge of the songs of thanksgiving. This was a concerted effort. This wasn't slapping together and let's just play anything you want. This was a concerted effort, a planned praise party. Worship, singing was getting ready to get going. Praise and worship is central, has always been central to God's people. Now, we have a lot of definitions for worship. Let me just give you one simple one. You might have heard of it before. Worship can be defined as worth-ship, where we engage our mind, our emotion, and will to gratefully, gratefully acknowledge the worth of our God. Worship, the worth of our God. No human activity as lofty as that is to worship and magnify and sing and worship and praise God. Now remember, I think it was two weeks ago, we said that you and I were created in the Imago Dei, the image and likeness of God, and part of being created in that image is that we were created worshipers. Not so much that we were created to worship, although that's true. It's more of the nature of who we are. We're created worshipers. And we were created to worship. Sin had broken down the reality of that. And we sin and we worship created things, not the creator God. But since Christ has come and gives us his spirit, we are now focusing our attention on the worship. And we should be repenting of our sins and coming back to the worship of our God and to magnify the Lord, to worship him, to glory in him. 
So let me give you four things that you guys could, we'll talk about briefly here and then you can look at in community group as well about what's going on in worship here. I'm gonna give you four things. The first one is the disposition of worship. I have character, okay. Disposition, character of worship. <laughs> look, look at verse 27, chapter 12. I'm sorry, chapter 12, verse 27. The Levites were brought to celebrate the dedication with gladness and thanksgiving, and with singing, with cymbals, harps, and lyres. Okay, the walls have been completed. We said that 52 days, there's been, two months have gone by, about two months have gone by. They're preparing themselves, and now they're dedicating the walls, and they're preparing themselves to worship. Look what it says, to dedicate with gladness and thanksgiving. Gladness and thanksgiving. Very important. It's a wonderful time. And you see these two dispositions is really very central to worship. Grateful celebration and thanksgiving. Now, grateful celebration is a major aspect of worship. Why? Because when we celebrate gratefully, our eyes are getting off of the world. Our eyes are getting off of self. And celebrating God begins with who God is. See, in order to celebrate, in order to worship, in order to praise his worship, we are to get our eyes off ourselves, eyes off the world, and put our eyes upon who God is. And that's why we sing songs right here at King's Chapel. Our hearts respond to your revelation. All you are showing, all we have seen, commands a life of praise, commands a life of celebration. No one can sing of things they have not seen. God, open our eyes, open our eyes towards a greater glimpse, the glory of you. We want to see you. We want to see your worship. We want to see your majesty. We want to see your, who you are. Open our eyes to a greater glimpse. Why? Because worship starts with seeing you. You should know that song. Worship starts with seeing you. So I would say the essence of worship, this musical expression of worship, is not primarily form styles, music, or genre. It's about responding to the holiness of God, to the greatness of God, to the goodness of God, to the holiness and the radical beauty, infinite value, incalculable worth of God. It begins with him, his revelation. As John Piper would say, it brings us to two places, one of gravity, he is holy, we are not, and gladness. Because even while we were tainted with sin and broken and deserve hell, damnation, and the wrath, our God, instead of crushing us to powder, we tremble before him, but then we look up and we see the Christ, the one who died in our place. Like Isaiah, who saw the Lord sitting on a throne, said, I am undone, And then the angel came, and there was atonement. You see, there's gravity. God is holy. We are not. But there's gladness because God invites us to come through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Tim Keller said, the gospel is that we are so wicked, he had to die, but we are so loved, he was glad to die. The essence of our worship is both gravity, his holiness, and gladness celebration because of his wonderful grace. And then there's thanksgiving. Look at verse 31 of chapter 12. You see, thanksgiving will explode from the heart who recognizes God's holiness, who recognizes and gratefully thanking him for his son who gives us the 
access into his throne. There is thanksgiving. Verse 31. I brought the leaders of Judah up upon the wall and appointed two great choirs that what? Gave thanks. They gave thanks. All through this we gave thanks. When we give thanks, we express our heart's attitude and gratitude of gladness that he did not reduce me to powder and rubble but invited me in. And we see that here. A.W. Tozer writes this. What is worship? Worship is to feel in your heart and express in some appropriate manner a humbling but delightful sense of admiring awe and astonished wonder and overpowering love in the presence of that most ancient mystery, the mystery which philosophers call the first cause, but we call our Father who art in heaven. A celebration. This celebration, gravity and gladness and thanksgiving. Number two, the joy of worship. You can't escape this. The very core of acceptable worship is not simply how we do it, but what we do, but how we do it. It's not just what we do, it's how we do it. The new residents of Jerusalem radiated with joyful hearts, jubilant songs of singing of thanksgiving. Do you remember in chapter 8, verse 12, how joyful they were when the scriptures were opened? It says, the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. God's word was open. They made twigs. You remember the, the, the Feast of Booths and it says their joy was very great. Worship was never meant to be dull and boring. Do you know, something to think about. Do you know that the Bible commands us to have joy? Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. It's not up for grabs. Delight thyself in the Lord. It's a command. Here they are dedicating the walls. They're celebrating joyfully. They're dedicating. They're singing, thanksgiving, and using all kinds of instruments. I love it. Verse 27. Cymbals, harps, and lyres. Verse 35 and 41 tell us that the priests played the trumpets. We've got some priests playing the trumpets. This whole passage is filled with superlatives. Large choirs, verse 31. 43, the priest offers great sacrifices with rejoicing with great joy. There's nothing half-hearted about this joyful adoration because it's flowing. It's flowing out from a heart. A, a, a grateful heart, a supremely grateful heart of people who've experienced the mercy and the grace and the kindness of God and his generosity toward them. And it brought up great joy. Psalm 100. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. I love John Piper's quote. Revelation. It talks about the unveiling of who God is in the scripture and the worship of our hearts. He says this. Truth without emotion produces dead orthodoxy and a church full or half full of artificial admirers. On the other hand, emotion without truth produces empty frenzy and cultivates shallow people who refuse the discipline of rigorous thought. But true worship comes from people who are deeply emotional and who love deep and sound doctrine. They love to see God, hear God in Scripture, know who He is, worship Him in truth, and their hearts are in it to worship. So there's a disposition. Gratefulness, thanksgiving, joy of worship. Look at the witness of worship. 
This is so cool. Look at verse 31. (laughs) The leaders are like, you know what? Let's not go into the temple and sing. Let's go on top of the wall and do it. Verse 31. Then I brought the leaders of Judah up upon the wall and appointed two great choirs that gave thanks. One went to the south on the wall to the dung gate, and the other went to Hoshiah and half of the leaders, Judah, and a certain priest's sons, sons with trumpets, some with musical instruments of David, the man of God, and Ezra, here's Ezra, the scribe went before them. At the fountain gate, verse 37 of chapter 12, they went up straight before them by the stairs of the city of David and the ascent of the wall above the house of David to the water gate on the east. So this is a big wall. It's a wide wall. People could stand on it. Verse 38, the other choir, that was just one choir, of those who gave thanks went to the north, and I followed them. So you have Ezra leading a band. You got Nehemiah leading a band. Half of the people up on the wall, tower ovens, and the broad wall. It's so cool. Too large. They're like, let's not go inside the temple and worship. Let's go up on the wall. We're dedicating the wall. Let's go stand on this thing. And you're like, well, why would you do that? Why, why would you not just go into a place that's comfortable and just worship God in the temple? I'm glad you asked. I'm going to give you a couple of reasons why I think they did that. Number one, think. 52 days, they returned back to the city of God. The wall is built. What a, what a time of memorizing, memorializing physically than to dedicate the wall and stand on it. To see and to touch the walls during the dedication service, I think was was. was Unbelievable. It was a visual reminder of, of God's goodness, God's faithfulness, God's kindness, God's presence. So it was a visible reminder. Secondly, people were watching. It's easy to miss this, but do you remember chapter 9, excuse me, of 4 of Nehemiah? Tobiah, we're going to see him again in chapter 13. Tobiah said, oh, look at these people building this wall. Are they kidding me? He says, what are they building? If a fox goes up on it, it will break down their stone wall. Chapter 4, verse 3. So Nehemiah's like, yeah, fox? All right, let's... 150 of them, I don't know how many there were, but let's go up on the wall. And you know what? It didn't fall down. In other words, to say, listen, world, God is faithful. God did this. We did this, verse, uh, chapter 6, verse 16, with the help of our God. And here they are walking up, doing a dance up on the top of the wall, sort of like a Super Bowl dance with, with deflated footballs or something. You know, and they're, and they're up there, they're dancing. All right, you, you can see me later. And they're marching up there, verse 43, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard from afar. Like, what is going, look at those people up there. What, are, they, are they crazy? Singing, praising, worshiping God. Several years ago, we did a, 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 a series called Marks of a Missional Church. What does a church look like when it's living on mission? And one of them had to do with worship. It had to do with the corporate gathering. And we said this. We said, if we want to be a missional church, we want to live on mission with Jesus, we need several things during our service. Number one, we need to be God-centered. We see this all throughout Nehemiah. It's God-centered. You're our God. You're the God. You're the creator. You're the the only one to be worshipped. needs to be God-centered, we said. This is way back when. Secondly, we said, need to be content-driven. Scripture, all they did was read Scripture. God spoke when they opened their Bibles. You see that in Nehemiah. It was God, God spoke. So God-centered, content-driven, highly participatory, we said. I looked this up. I'm thinking, uh, this, is, this is years ago. And I'm like, this is exactly what we see. Highly participatory. It's involvement. It's not just hearing the words, it's responding. It's, it's singing. It, it, it's, it's a group effort. We see that here too. Number four, authentically experience. It's not just for me to worship. It's for us to do it in truth. 
and to be honest and to do it authentically. And finally, we said missional churches need to be peripherally evangelistic. That means that people need to see the people of God gathering, worshiping the one true and living God and and turn from their sins and trust him as well. Paul did it. Paul and Silas in the prison singing and the guards like, what are they singing about? They should be crying. They're worshiping. He gets saved. 1 Corinthians 14 talks about having non-believers in your gathering that when you're preaching and teaching and things are done in an orderly fashion, they said they'll fall down on their face and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. Like, wow, you're really talking to and in relationship with the living God? Yes, come. Come to Jesus. Worship Jesus. He's rose from the dead. He lives forevermore. He's calling people to repentance and to faith in him. Yes, trust him. He is here. So you have the disposition, the joy, the witness, and finally the response. Look at the response. Verse 47. All of Israel, in the days of Zerubbabel and in the days of Nehemiah, gave the daily portions for the singers and the gatekeepers. And they set apart that which was for the Levites. And the Levites set apart that which was for the sons of Aaron. Those are the priests. So what we see here is at the end of the worship service, it didn't really end. They said, let's give. They already said in chapter 10, we're going to give to the work of the temple. Here we see it fulfilling. That yes, we worship. It was a great celebration of praise and worship. But let's give. Let's financially support the work of God so that we can continually come and worship the Lord. Tithes and offering were given. Derek Kidner writes in his commentary, it is one thing to shout on a great occasion, but another to offer the sacrifice of praise continually and to make realistic provision for the church's needs. Are you giving faithfully? We talk about money only when money's talking about been talked about in scripture are you giving faithfully are are you providing for the worship of God's people and finally it's the gospel it is the gospel it is not only the witness of worship the response of worship but worshiping the God of the gospel revelation I, I was praying, I'm like, how are we going to end this great celebration of worship? And I thought, let's worship. Revelation 5. See, we need, we need to, we really need to step out of our comfort zone. Where does God want me to do? What does God want me to go, I mean, and want me to do? I need to, I need to do this together. But it's really about beginning and ending with worshiping the God of the gospel. John chapter 5, Revelation chapter 5, John is brought up into the throne room of God. And he says in chapter 5 verse 1, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. All of history. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy? To open the scroll and break its seals. No one in heaven, no one on earth, no one under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because there was no one found worthy to open the scroll or look onto it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered 
He's king. He's sovereign. He is all strength, omnipotent power. He is the lion. He can open the scroll and its seven seals. Verse 6. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, where the lion is, he also looked and he saw a lamb. A lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes with the seven spirits of God sent out into the earth. It's the Holy Spirit. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and a golden bowl full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. They sang a new song saying, Worthy are you, Lamb of God, tribe of Judah, lion, worthy are you to take the scroll, to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and every people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and a priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard from around the throne and the living creatures, the elders, the voice of many angels, numbers and myriads and myriads of thousands upon thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power, wealth, wisdom, and might, honor, and glory, and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and in the sea, and all that is in them, saying, To him who sits on the throne, to the Lamb, be blessings, honor, glory, and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped him. You see, the gospel is the lion from the tribe of Judah, the king of kings, lord of lords, omnipotent power, all-knowing, all-powerful God. Jesus Christ has given the authority to unroll the scrolls. All authority of heaven and earth has been given to him. Why? Because he was a lamb who was slain for his people. That, my family, friends, is worthy of worship. Do you know that God? Do you know that King? Do you know that Messiah? Do you know that Savior? Let it produce in you a wealth of gratitude and thanksgiving. That's all. Just a worship of all he is. That's all we're calling the church to do today, is to worship him. Where does he want you to go? What does he want you to do? Let it all begin with just worshiping the lamb who was slain, who's received all power, all glory, all honor forever and ever.